Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Monday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, the Atlanta Falcons Youth Foundation wants to help more children and families eat, cook, and grow healthy food. We'll hear how the organization is seeking partners and get this. We'll give y'all some money. They'll offer some funding that's coming up later in the program. But we'll begin with this that you just heard on NPR as a lot of school districts are deciding when and when all the students will be able to turn to school. Now, some Atlanta public school students had the option of returning to the classroom today. Third through fifth graders were allowed to choose in-person learning or remain virtual. And pre-K through second graders, well, they returned to the classroom two weeks ago. Atlanta Public School Superintendent Dr. Lisa Herring talked about these options right here on Closer Look just last week. Starting Monday, February 8th, grades three through five will now return. And then Tuesday, February 16th, grades 6 through 12 will return. And again, I want to be clear when I say they will return, this represents the 30% of our overall population that elected to do face-to-face option. So there are no schools at full capacity. That's just the percentage of, that represents the percentage of families who elected to do face-to-face in this window. Now, I also spoke with superintendents from Clayton and DeKalb, and if you missed any of those conversations, they're online at wabe.org slash closer look. And a note of disclosure, WAB's broadcast license is held by the Atlanta Board of Education. Meanwhile, depending on the district, not just here in Georgia, but throughout the country, the debate continues as to the approach as to the approach our nation should take in terms of reopening schools. Now, here's what CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky said earlier today during the White House COVID-19 response team's weekly press conference. What we know mostly about schools in terms of the data are that most infections come into the schools through the community. The data from schools suggests that there's very little transmission that is happening within the schools especially when there's masking and distancing occurring, and that when there are transmissions in the schools, it is because they've brought, been brought in from the community and because there are breaches in masking and distancing. So if we want to get our schools open and our schools open safely and well, the best way to do that is to decrease the community spread. Hmm. Now, on to our daily coronavirus numbers right here in Georgia. Now, since last Monday, there have been 23,000 plus new cases that have been reported. And that brings an estimated 772,978 cases total confirmed in Georgia. Also, since last Monday, there have been 756 new deaths due to the virus. And that brings a total to 13,326 Georgians who have died. And this is according to the Georgia Department of public health. Now, in related news, COVID-19 measures, there are some that are on the minds of Georgia's General Assembly. So we ask what's happening with our state lawmakers. Well, let's ask WAB reporters Emma Hurt and Emil Moffitt and maybe Emma's dog. Thank you all for joining me. I appreciate it. Hey, Rose. No <laughs> dog today. I'm, I'm at the Capitol, but, oh, but Shay sends her best. Oh, we love Shay. Let's begin with some procedural news for our listeners, because at this point, let me ask you all this. And Emma, I'll start with you. If a bill has not had a committee hearing, is it likely that it's dead? No, we've still got we've still got time. Mm-hmm. We've still got time. Um, so things things tend to start slow especially in the first year of the session. So it's actually a two-year session here at the legislature, which means, you know, you're elected for two years and a bill introduced this year can still be alive next year. And so we've got a bunch of freshman lawmakers who are still trying to figure out how to make a bill, how to make a law. And so they are starting out a little bit slower, as always. Emil, you want to add anything to that? 
Yeah, it seems like it has gotten off to a little bit of a slow start, but that's, as Emma said, that's par for the course. Uh, but we have seen just a, a flurry of activities. There have been, um, you know, 300, more than 300 bills filed in the House, 100, more than 100 in the Senate, including 20 uh, election-related bills uh, overall in the General Assembly. So we are seeing some activity. It's just uh, seeing which ones will will have some momentum going forward. And to and that, Rose, go ahead. I just want to say that one thing we're seeing a lot less of are resolutions, which are kind mm. of the um, ceremonial things commemorating different people in different districts because we can't have visitors at the Capitol. And so there's very few of those ceremonial resolutions happening because of COVID. For our listeners who may not be aware, when we have these co committee hearings, and typically you can bring in folks from the outside as well to offer a, a, a personal or human interest to a, a particular proposed bill. Are we seeing any of that or is that not allowed this year, Emma? We're, we're seeing it. You know, it's still public comment is still allowed, but a lot of these committees are happening in sort of pseudo virtual formats. So a lot of that public comment is being encouraged virtually. And, you know, it's all at the discretion of, of chairmen as well. So each committee is run a little bit differently, chairmen and chairwomen. Mm -hmm. And Emil, lobbyists love to come down to the Capitol. Are we seeing less, a, a fewer amount of those folks this year because of the pandemic? I would say there are not as many lobbyists, but there are certainly a good number of them. As you walk toward the chambers, uh, you will see them uh, kind of gathered out in the in the hallways and, and trying to, to chat with lawmakers. Uh, but the, the good thing is everybody is wearing a mask. Uh, people are maintaining social distance as much as they can. But, uh, you know, there can be at, at times uh, a few dozen people standing in the hallway as you're walking toward the toward the chamber. Uh, but I would say that uh, there are not as many lobbyists as we've seen in past years. Well, let's get into some measures that seem to be moving pretty quickly. And I want to talk about the amended state budget, which is headed to the full Senate this week. And I understand investing in public health is a major focal point this year. What can all of you tell us about this year's proposed budget and what we might see and what lawmakers want to see? Well, it, I mean, it has been for for the uh, the members of the General Assembly. The House and the Senate both put about $40 million uh, into public health, hiring uh, three new positions or money for three new positions um, and money for a, a new website that would track uh, COVID-19 vaccinations. But these are additions. These are uh, what the uh, what the House and the Senate put into the governor's recommendation. The governor uh, relying very heavily in his budget proposals on that federal money that's coming in. And I'll just add, Rose, what's what's remarkable about the budget this year is that we're talking about public health funding. You know, mm -hmm. normally it's it's not really the, the top headline. It's not really the top priority, unfortunately, mm -hmm. of our legislature. And I think there's awareness now of, of what that can mean when you're in a situation like a pandemic. And so, you know, it's definitely the number one question that we're all asking and that, that you asked us. So that's some progress, as one of my friends who's an epidemiologist told me. Well, and listen, we know that all the states in this nation took a hit as it relates to revenue and now more measures that, you know, are like, hey, this is a way to make some money for the state. Well, let's talk about legalized online sports betting. This is something that's been debated for years. And, and I want to push away the casinos for a moment because it looks like, and Emma, uh, I'll let you handle this one, or, or Emil, the online sports betting might get a might be able to, to get approved before we talk about casinos, correct? It's just an easier lift because the Supreme Court a couple of years ago made a, made a decision that that paves the way for states to legalize it. And as we know, you know, it's already happening. People are already betting online, as many people did yesterday. It's just that the state isn't collecting revenue on it. So it's a lot easier of a sell. And it's also just a regular bill, whereas casinos and horse racing is a constitutional amendment. So that's two thirds of the legislature and then a referendum on everyone's ballots, whereas this is just a regular bill law. And so there is a feeling around here that that has the possibility to pass. Whereas, as, as you alluded to, you know, casinos, the ideas come around and around and around mm -hmm. and never quite made it over the, the hurdle. Well, and one issue with the casino is casinos is exactly who would regulate this body. And last we checked, Georgia Lottery is like, we don't <laughs> we just want to deal with scratch offs and the mega million and a Powerball. So, Emil, you want to add anything to the online sports betting? And you mentioned the Georgia Lottery, and they would actually be in charge of running the online sports betting uh, platform, if you will. Um, and that's something that is, Emma mentioned, it's going to be an easier lift. That's why, because it would just be kind of folded into 
um, the Georgia lottery. Another note on that is there are some provisions built in uh, to, to ease some of the concerns that some lawmakers have, or perhaps ease those concerns with regards to people who can place bets. They can't place bets on a credit card. You have to do it on a debit card, and they're worried about uh, people maxing out credit cards mm. uh, on, on gambling. Uh, there's also provisions about sports teams and, and leagues and affiliates who might have in undue influence on on these games and the outcome of these games, and they're trying to protect the integrity of sports. But it is important to note that all of the major sports teams in Atlanta have gotten behind uh, online gambling for sports. And we want to reiterate, professional sports team, you cannot bet on the Emmett Middle School. Are they the Eagles? <laughs> <laughs> and I, look, I... I <laughs> Not yet. You know, the bills still could be rewritten. <laughs> Don't give them any ideas, Emma. Uh, let's talk about, let's shift for a moment and talk about all those voting-related measures. Uh, we, we sort of hit on it last week, but are any of them seeing any, any traction at all? Emil, that's kind of been your area. Sure. Uh, you know, there there has been, um, there have been little bills here and there that have come up, and then uh, now we're seeing one that, that has a little more weight behind it from, from some Senate leadership, and so that's the one we'll probably keep our closest eye on. Right now, the big debate is over whether or not uh, an excuse is needed or should be needed for an absentee ballot. Right now, it's not. It's been that way since 2005. Apparently, it was everything was fine until this past November uh, when Democrats won big, and then all of a sudden, uh, their talk started about needing an excuse. Mm -hmm. um, it's one thing that, that lawmakers have said uh, there needs to be an excuse, but when you look at the, the leadership, uh, top Georgia Republicans, the governor, the lieutenant governor, and the House Speaker have all said they're not fully committed mm -hmm. uh, to doing away with no excuse absentee voting. And we, you know, Emil alluded to this, it's this big omnibus, like big comprehensive election reform package that we're looking to see this week. So that's something that people can can watch out for. You know, we know vaguely what's in it. We got a heads up on it and a, and a sort of preview. But to see the actual bill be dropped, we're expecting that sometime this week. And Replica, Representative Phil Singleton, a Republican, in this House Bill 276 last week, which would ban transgender female athletes from participating in girls-only sports. What has been the reaction to this? It made the, the, the airwaves, and, and I can imagine what the reaction has been. What are you all hearing? Yeah, uh, Representative Singleton introduced a similar bill last year, and it didn't go anywhere, and he's trying again, and, and he held a press conference and brought out a lot of young um, female athletes, and his own daughter spoke, saying, you know, it's not fair to compete against boys but as you can imagine this has gotten strong criticism from mm -hmm. um you know advocates for transgender youth in across the country there have been measures like this and that that uh, blowback has been fierce in georgia as well and there's also the, the issue that you know this bill would apply to state um public schools and universities mm -hmm. and there's the issue that this would violate the ncaa's policy on this and so there's a lot of questions about it and like i said Based on last year, it's unclear how how much traction this bill would actually get because it is very controversial and mm. maybe problematic in terms of that policy. Yeah. As we wrap up, and Emma, I'll, I'll stay with you. What are you going to be watching for this week? It's sports betting. I mean, I just I can't ever get a good sense of how real this is. You know, I, I'm hearing that it's that there is more reality than there ever has been, particularly on this issue. But gambling and different expansion of gambling comes back again and again. And I there are so many lobbyists around here who are who are working the problem. And so mm -hmm. sometimes you wonder if the lobbying um, force might be outweighing how realistic it is. But mm -hmm. but that's that's definitely what I'm like. What I'm eyeing. Sports betting. Emil, what about you? We'll be watching the Senate as uh, it uh, gets ready to pass its version of the budget. We saw it pass out of committee last week. I didn't make too many changes from the House version. Um, uh, again, as you mentioned, uh, extra funding for public health, extra funding, putting money back into education. Um, and so we'll be watching for the, the passage uh, from the full Senate on, on the, uh, the mid-year budget. Mm. WABE reporters Emil Moffitt and Emma Hurt as always thank you both for taking the time and keeping our listeners updated on what's happening down at the Gold Dome you all stay safe thanks Enjoy for having us Rose
That Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. Last week on this program, we met two educators from the Life High School. We met Michaela Streeter, the founding principal of the Life High School, and we also met Cabral Muhammad, a science teacher. And we talked about the Zucchini's Homeschool Co-op. They started in August of last year. And then it was we talked about how they were helping younger students during the pandemic. Well, since then, y'all sent me about Six, seven, six and a half emails. <laughs> you wanted to know more about the Life High School. You had questions and you wanted to know more about the Life High School and its learning model. So we invited them back to the program to explain further. So join me now. It's Principal Michaela Streeter and Cabral Muhammad. Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. You all struck a chord with our listeners. They have questions, so we're going to ask them. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks for having us. Let's begin here because uh, Principal Streeter, the vision for the Life High School reads, I'm going to quote it here. The Life School is an innovative high school in Atlanta where students learn through passion, projects, and hands-on academic work. So when someone listening says, well, what exactly does that mean? Take it further for me. Absolutely. So we designed the school to be something where students would love to come to school every day, where they don't have to ask, why are we doing this? They would see the connections to the real world, to their life, to their interests. And so we incorporate projects, discussions, labs into every class. So students are 3D printing race cars and geometry to learn about surface area and volume. Uh, in uh, science classes, they're uh, learning about uh, real animals. We have rabbits, fish, chickens, all sorts of animals where they can really connect biology and chemistry um, to uh, the the academic topics. And and we can really just go down the list across the board. Uh, We really want students to see it and be immersed in their learning. Cabral, how would you take that that vision and and explain it further for our listeners? I would add to that that um, the relevance you know, finding something that I'm interested in doesn't really arise necessarily from a textbook, at least not when I was a student. And so for me, it's a very personal thing. I believe that education, science in particular, could and should be very messy. And those were the lessons that I always remembered growing up, were the things that I really got to dive in. I really got to hold it, shape it, and, and uh, manipulate it and see how it worked from the inside and the out. And that's basically, you know, in a nutshell, that's basically what life school does. It, we take every aspect of education and we pull it apart and we try to look at all the different angles. We try to look at all the different sides and find ways where student can, students can use that and apply their own personality and creativity to it. Is this considered a self-directed education model? It is self-directed. It's a fully accredited school. So we, we guide them in their self-direction. Um, but it is also very much um, uh, high rigor um, and uh, but comfortable. It's in a way where students can kind of uh, activate, identify, and then really capitalize on their own individual learning style. Let's let's pause there for a moment because I imagine a lot of listeners are saying, "Well, how do you how do you develop then the curriculum? Do you have a different curriculum for each student?" Do you have to sit down with the student and then I guess it's the parents and how do you all decide that? And it can that be a little bit, uh, t- I don't say daunting, because if each student has a different self-directed curriculum, how do you all keep track of all that? Yeah, that's a good question. So the benefit of a smaller school, so we have about 50 students in our high school, is that we can get to know every student and every family, their strengths and their areas for improvement. Uh, and, and what's nice about our school day is that it's not micromanaged. You're not going from one class to the next to the next all day. Uh, we have incorporated this Montessori principle of um, giving students time to have more independent, longer blocks of time to really get in the zone. So you might have math class in the morning, but then in the afternoon, you have space to sit and work with the teacher and they know that fractions are hard for you or they know that you know, writing or something maybe more of a challenge, and they can sit with you and really work through that with you. So again, how many students do you all currently have at the life high school principal? Yeah, yeah, 50 students in ninth through 12th grade, and we're going to about 150 in the next few years. Well, so 150 in the next few years. So right now, you just talked about that is the advantage of having a small student body, and you want to grow this. So as your mm-hmm. student body grows, you also have to have more educators. So does that 
also present a, a challenge for you all? Well, or maybe a challenge you welcome. We welcome that challenge. We have been able to find incredible mm -hmm. educators who are very eclectic. So we have, uh, like Mr. Cabral is a scientist who also is a music producer. We have uh, our math teacher also loves outdoor adventure. Our art teacher loves writing. And so we have, everybody's a mix of all these different interests. And so students can really see there's no left brain or right brain. You are just who you are and we want to get to know you as a whole person and, and nurture and grow that as a, as a whole person. What are some of the common questions or even criticisms that you all get about, maybe not necessarily the life high school, but this self-directed learning? Sometimes people are worried that, well, my kid is not super self-directed. I have to tell them to do this and tell them to do that. How, how will they get through their day? But That's we, a very valid point, Principal. <laughs> <laughs> and I understand that. Right? But we work with them from wherever they are to um, develop that skill. And so they learn time management and project management. Each day they check in with us. What's your plan for today? How can we support you? And they do have like dedicated classes. So there's a teacher for math and there's a teacher for English or history, science. And so you're not just sort of thrown out into the wild and say, be great. You know, we work with them to really nourish and mentor each student. And so because students aren't in class all day and they have these independent times, teachers also have that. And so they can sit and really work and connect with each student, not just as a teacher, but as a mentor as well. Well, as a principal and then as a, an educator, do, are you all looking for specific types of textbooks that also adapt or, or you that may be a great complement to this self-directed learning? So uh, so we use some textbooks, but for the most part, uh, we use real experiences. So students are making and building things, creating things, and there's also an abundance of content online. So students have... Um, all of this that's available to them to really research and explore. So they're reading dynamic articles, all the things that you and I might read to learn about what's happening in the world. We work with students to unpack those and understand real issues. So we don't want school to be divorced from the real, the real world. So we're talking about the election. We're talking about topics of social justice in the world, public health. You know, so we're diving into those things with our students. No textbooks? I just want to, or is that, are you saying y'all don't, don't use textbooks? Not really. We use Google Classroom to organize everything for students. Um, so some of the languages may have some books to guide them around particular topics. But beyond that, teachers really curate um, dynamic classes um, based on what's happening in the world and students' interests. Do you all, with this self-directed learning in the life school, are you all part of a, a bigger or a nationwide sort of approach to this, this learning model? So there are definitely um, schools around the country. So we're connected with the uh, Acton network of schools. I mentioned some influence from Montessori. Mm -hmm. um, if folks are familiar with High Tech High out in California, they do a lot of project-based learning. So we have some, some folks that we're connected with. And then here in Atlanta, we're part of the Atlanta Area Association of Independent Schools. So um, there's um, some folks that we're connected to. Uh, Cabral, let me ask you if you can, if you can for our, our listeners, can you paint a, a typical day for them in your science class so then can I oh. understand what we're talking about here? Sure, sure. Um, our science classes, um, we offer physics, chemistry, biology, and environmental science. Um, so in, in any particular one of those classes, you might be actually engaging with elements of the environment itself. So we'll test some of the pond water and mm -hmm. things like that. That's here in Atlanta, we'll do surveys on like animal population growth. Um, we'll monitor climate, things like that. Um, we'll do a lot of lab work as well. So we've been working really diligently over the last few months to make sure that we've accumulated enough equipment to send microscopes and slides and dissection kits home with all of the students. Um, so it, it's been, it's a typical day, I would say, um, starts out with uh, a basic concept. Mm -hmm. And then, um, you know, we explore it, we, 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 we look at the different vocabulary terms that need to be pulled out. And then we look at ways that we can actually kind of create around it. So uh, one of the creative ways that we're looking at uh, studying some of the organelles within the cell is we're holding an election for the different organelles. So mm -hmm. each each committee, quote unquote, uh, so the students are broken up into cohorts and each cohort uh, is basically responsible for studying every element of that organelle 
and assuming that the nucleus, which is the mirror of the cell, retires, you know, why would this organelle be a qualified candidate to step up and take that leadership role? So it's just another creative way that they can actually kind of play with it and have fun, but also get all of the fundamental information about each part. And Cabral, as an educator, how often are you, I guess, educating yourself or making sure that you're implementing some new measures or measures that would fit into this self-directed learning concept here? And where do you go to get that Constantly. information? Constantly. Well, uh, as Ms. Michaela mentioned, there's a, uh, a variety of resources available online, but we also partner with some of the local universities for information. Um, we uh, work very closely with Georgia State on a variety of things. We, we also kind of push to make sure that we are pulling new information and we use student input as well to kind of guide that conversation. So we basically um, are constantly evolving our lessons to make sure, one, that we're meet, meeting all of the benchmarks, so mm -hmm. all of the state standards, but also that we're, we're coming at it in a variety of different ways. It may include music, it may include art and sculpture and things like that, but it's, it's always going to be a living, uh, a living experience. A lot of traditional education models follow that kind of maestro situation where you have a teacher kind of conducting and you just kind of play what the conductor says play but uh, ours follows more of a, almost like a African tradition where there's no real difference between performer and audience. So there's a lot of crowd participation. There's a lot of student participation in giving the lessons, in uh, helping to convey and interpret and looking at all the different angles and approaches. If you're just joining us, I'm joined by Cabral Muhammad. He's a science teacher at the Life high school and also I'm joined by Principal Michaela Streeter. I want to shift for a moment and Principal Streeter focus on you for a moment because your background in all of this, you're a software engineer. Mm -hmm. How did you how did you get involved with this? Yeah, so I did start my career as a software engineer on Silicon Valley. I studied computer science at MIT undergrad. Um, but I, my family has always been focused on youth development and I've always seen my parents um, pouring into young people. And so even as a software engineer, I was still tutoring folks in their coding classes or math classes. And, and I said, well, could I do this all the time? Just working with young people is so fulfilling. How could I get into it? So I started teaching computer science. Uh, and then uh, I went back to grad school at my master's in education at Stanford University uh, in, in education and just saw all of these different ways that people are thinking about how to, to teach and learn young people. And, mm -hmm. I, and I had to ask myself, why aren't we incorporating more of this into our students' day-to-day -day education? And one thing that jumped out for me was if you look at, say, a Girl Scout troop or you look at your football team or, or something like that, places where students go to learn mm -hmm. uh, and, they, and they have fun, they get excited to go and learn in these places. They go home and study the plays. Schools should feel like that, that leadership, that students feel that opportunity for ownership, that hands-on community experience. Every single day at school should feel like that. And that's what we're working to build at the life school. You know, uh, Cabral mentioned making sure that the students that you all as a, as a, as a school are meeting the benchmarks and the state benchmarks. I want to talk about assessments then. And, and do you all, you, you do this, the standard testing that's required or how do you assess then you know, the progress, the academic progress of the student. Yeah, so as an independent school in Georgia, we don't, uh, students don't have to take the Georgia exams. So students do take the SAT or ACT as they're preparing for college, if, if that's what they're focused on as a next step. And so that does give us some feedback and for families, some feedback as well. But within each class, projects are in a powerful way for a really um, formative assessment with students to say, you know, can you present this? Can you talk about this and really explain what you learned? Uh, and then students also have uh, an individual conference. We meet with every single student mm -hmm. and family every semester and talk about what they're learning, not just academically, but how they're growing as a person. And that gives us a really meaningful check-in um, as well. And in Principal Streeter, I'm curious, since you all first launched, uh, what have you learned? And have you all had to make changes or implement, you know, new procedures or whatever as, as relates to the educating of kids. What what has been your your learning growth in all of this? Yeah, I mean, we're constantly learning, growing and sharing ideas with one another. 
um, not just about education, but working with young people about entrepreneurship. I'm an entrepreneur, Mr. Cabral's an entrepreneur. We're learning how to build this business and really grow and expand it. And we are able to share that model for our students. So when we have a pitch, we go and practice it with the kids and they see how we're practicing. And then we're thinking about ideas and certainly with COVID, this has really pushed us mm -hmm. um, to completely rethink education and what it looks like for our students. I have a question from a listener who wants to know, do you all have typical traditional discipline problems with students? And if so, how do you all handle that? It's a very good question. Our listeners are on it, boy. I tell you, I love them. <laughs> Fantastic. I would say that, um, you know, teenagers are teenagers. However, I would say that from uh, coming from, you know, a public school, I did I did go to public school when I was young mm -hmm. and I've taught in a variety of schools, both here in uh, Georgia and also in California. Um, I would say that a lot of the discipline problems that come uh, from a normal school setting really have to do with students feeling safe um, and not just physically, but also in their identity. And that's something that the life school really, really works very hard to make sure that every student feels safe in who they are. And that actually alleviates a great deal of disciplinary problems. The children that we work with, um, and I would say most children indeed kind of have a natural disposition to be curious, to be sweet, to be um, um, courageous learners. And we just like to encourage that. Um, and the things that might be something that you're made fun of in, a, in another setting, um, whether you are a person of a certain type of color or you speak certain languages or you're, you have, you know, a blended family mm -hmm. or your parents are the same gender, all of these things that might be something looked at as kind of something that has to be overcome in another setting um, are actually things that we really celebrate. We work to celebrate each individual's uh, personhood here. Are you, you saying know. you don't have a lot of discipline discipline problems with the students? We really don't. Mm -hmm. We really don't have much discipline problems with the students. Principal Streeter, another question here says, do you all have uh, a make sure I get it right. Do you all have a curriculum for students with special needs, physical disabilities? So we do work with each family um, during the admissions process to understand um, their goals and their challenges. And then we're able to see how we're best able to support them mm -hmm. and that that would be a good fit. Often families come in with strategies that already work for their student and we can have a, a, a good discussion about our ability to support them. So we have been able to accommodate a number of learning differences and even schedule differences. We have some like elite athletes and things with some schedule differences. And so we're able to we have the flexibility to support a range of challenges. And another question just that just popped up. So are you saying y'all don't give tests at all? And do you give grades, letter grades? Listeners want to know. Yeah, yeah, that's what <laughs> I would have asked that too, by the way. Yeah, they should all come and just tour and sit down. No, you got to answer the question now, Principal. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, so we do give letter grades at the end of the semester, but throughout the semester, we focus on a completely mastery based approach. So you submit an assignment, you don't get a letter or number back, mm -hmm. you just get feedback and you continue to revise it until it reaches uh, the quality that the teacher is looking for. So we want students to really learn. So that first, say, essay or presentation may take you 10 revisions, but you're going to get so much feedback and so much understanding. The next time you got it and during the pandemic since the the students are learning already they've been learning with their devices you all have changed you've actually brought the students more you, you're, you're doing more in-class instruction correct so with the pandemic, we have a, a hybrid model. So mm -hmm. students can come to school in person four days a week, and then we're all working from home on Fridays. And they can choose each day whether or not they come to school. So we have about a third of the students in person and the rest from home. But what we saw last spring when we transitioned is because we spend so much time working with them on how to manage your time and projects and advocate for yourself, that students were able to really transition well into the pandemic and say, I know how to get things done. I know how to set a schedule and knock things out. I know how to reach out to a teacher, text or call when I have questions. And they have been really phenomenal. And Mr. Cabral and other teachers have done a good job of putting together kits and resources to, so that we can, we just drove to every house <laughs> and, and dropped off science kits and robotics kits for all the families. Most of your students come from the Atlanta area? Yeah, so most students come from nearby our school, west side or downtown, they either live or the parents work. Um, but we also have students who come from farther away. So as far as Snellville, Lithonia, McDonough. And the parents so. bring them. You all don't have bus service for them. Uh, what about Correct. for students where English is a, is a second language in their in their household? 
so we do expect the students to be able to engage in English throughout the day, um, but we can, we, we haven't had that come up actually, but we, we are flexible to work with folks and see what we can do. How diverse is the student population in terms of, of ethnicity and so forth? Yeah, so we are really proud that um, we have this incredibly high quality and innovative education and that the vast majority of our students are students of color, so about 90% of our students. Uh, and then um, we have about a 60-40 like split between boys and girls. And Alistair wants to know, do you all give them lunch? That would be so great. Um, we do not give them lunch. So students can bring their lunch hot or cold. We have fridges and whatnot for them. All right. Uh Michaela, I asked you about, you know, why you took this path with a background in, in software engineering and you talked about your family's influence. Uh, and then I'll let this be the last question for both of you. Where do you want to see this school in, let's say, five years? Yeah, in five years, uh, we're, we're, like I mentioned, growing to 150 students. We want to also expand our zucchinis program as well so that students uh, from three years old all the way up to 17, 18 can really learn and grow in this dynamic kind of environment. We wanna take kids all around the world and travel and, and really partner with amazing organizations around the area. Well, let me ask you this before I let Cabral answer the question. Then what type of educator is the best fit then for this type of model for the Life High School, for this self-directed learning? Yeah, so teachers that are, um, educators that are eclectic can, can teach, speak to students on a number of different topics. Educators that are um, flexible and, and agile and are able to, to go with the flow as students and needs change from day to day. Um, and students and teachers that are, are open to a new approach to education who are, who are willing to push outside of the box and outside of the limits and want to be creative in their field. They need to have a teacher's license. They want, you want some, I mean, you said, I mean, anyone okay. can be a teacher, but do you have any requirements just like the state might have for other traditional schools? So it does differ from role to role. So if, if folks are interested in coming teaching at our school, we're happy to talk with them and map that out. All right. And Cabral, I'll give you the last word here. Where do you hope this school will be in five years? Um, I would like to, to see this school really reach from pre-K all the way to 12. So really just create a wraparound education experience where young people are constantly being challenged and taught how to advocate for themselves. Because really that's what it comes down to. Are you able to demand your education no matter what scenario you are in? We want our students to be able to be successful, not just here at the life school, but anywhere they choose to go. Even pre-K? Even pre-K, I would say, even pre-K. I'm going to hold you to that because three and four-year-olds, you ask them one question and they don't... <laughs> Oh, yeah. But they're also pretty bossy. And if you ever, you know, sit down and talk to them, they seem to have already a plan that they want to execute. And <laughs> it only goes sideways when they can't execute that plan. Don't I know it. You Cabr definitely want to. Yeah. <laughs> Cabral Muhammad, Michaela Streeter, thank you so much for coming back, answering those questions. A lot of those questions came from our listeners who want to know more about your program. Thank you all so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having us. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Before the coronavirus pandemic, it was estimated 35 million experienced hunger here in the U.S. And since the pandemic, it's estimated to have increased to 50 million. And here's what we also know. According to data from the census, a survey they took revealed one in six adult households with children reported not having enough food over a seven-day period. Here in Georgia, one out of four children live in what's labeled a food insecure household. That, folks, accounts for 20 percent of Georgia's children. Now, from the Atlanta Falcons Youth Foundation, 
They want a greater understanding of the landscape, as they call it, with Georgia's food system due to the impact of COVID-19. And guess what? They're willing to get involved and there's funding. Well, joining me now is Abby Lutzenkirchen. She's the program associate for the Arthur and Blank Family Foundation. Abby, welcome to the program. I appreciate it. Hello. Thanks for having me. Uh, tell the listeners a little bit more about the mission of the Atlanta Falcons Youth Foundation to get us started. Yes, the Atlanta Falcons Youth Foundation um, serves as a affiliated fund, a part of the Arthur M. Blank Family Foundation, and we focus on combating childhood obesity through physical activity and healthy food access um, for youth across the state of Georgia. And so as you all, obviously, as a lot of folks been trying to figure out with, from organizations, nonprofits, what have you, foundations, how we can be involved in, in helping and, and offering resources, why food insecurity, why hunger in, in children? It makes sense, so, um, let's be clear. Yeah, so it's historically been something that that Land of Falcons Youth Foundation has focused on. Um, we know that physical activity is really important for youth to be healthy, but um, eating healthy and knowing what healthy eating means is even more important in making sure that a child is um, really focusing on their health as they get older. And so now you all are sort of reaching out, asking and finding out what initiatives are already out there. You all are going to be funding, but what are you looking for when you talk about partners and what are you looking for when you talk about organizations that, that demonstrate a sort of a large scale or innovative initiatives? Yeah. So you hit the nail on the head. We're looking for um, groups that are collaborating together um, to solve the problem of food insecurity um, in the metro Atlanta area, but then across the state, we know there's differences in food insecurity when it comes to living within the city limits and then living outside in rural parts of the state. Um, so we really want to look for scalable solutions. So groups that have the capacity to be able to grow a program that's successful, say in Metro Atlanta, that can then grow out to somewhere rural um, to really impact those communities as well. And so you all are looking to fund these organizations. Now, you know, when word gets out, have you already had, uh, you don't have to mention organizations, but have you had a, a lot of organizations and groups applying? Yes, so um, the, the applications are due on February 26th for this next round. Um, it actually was perfect timing for us. We established kind of our food oasis is what we called it portfolio um, back in 2012, around 2012, 2013, 2014, where we really established some relationships with some really, really strong organizations within the state. Um, and just with the timing of everything, our last grant payments to all those organizations were in 2020. Um, and then just seeing the landscape of food insecurity, especially for Georgia's youth, because of the pandemic, um, it was just perfect timing to re-up that portfolio for the Falcons Youth Foundation. I want to shift for a moment and go back. And for our listeners who may not quite understand, can you talk about, highlight one or two initiatives that you all have been involved with in the past that were really, really successful? So, for example, um, for our food access portfolio, we worked with Georgia Organics, who um, then had a network across the state. Um, and we're doing some micro grants for communities to really make sure that local farmers were getting their food um, within school systems and, and districts to make sure that these kids were eating fresh local produce. And when you all are looking for partners and organizations, it doesn't have to be in the Atlanta area. It could be throughout Georgia. Yes. Yep. Statewide. Let me ask you this because you, you know, I did my homework. You're a former athlete. Mm-hmm. You are an athlete, not former. Once you're an athlete, yes. you play with soccer. Yeah, you, st- you play yes. soccer, right? You're a good yes, soccer player. Alabama. Mm-hmm. Yeah, now that's the downside that you played at Alabama. <laughs> uh, my producer is a UGA grad, is alum, and she's shaking her head, going, "Oh, Alabama." Um, <laughs> but uh, the importance of incorporating just ath- sports and youth. For our listeners who may not understand, just I understand it because I grew up in it and, and I've been a part of it. But the connection of when kids are able to use sports and also you're going to incorporate some life skills and social skills for you know, for these kids. For our listeners that may not understand that, can you just give them some insight into how important this is? Yeah, I mean, I, like you said, being an athlete, understand just how impactful sports have been on my life to have coaches and, and educators and and kids my own age who believe in the same thing and understand what it takes to be successful in your physical fitness is, is all encompassing. So we as an organization um, just believe in using the Falcons platform to, to make sure kids know that there are opportunities to be healthy, not just in traditional sporting ways, but Mm -hmm. in every aspect of life, you can enjoy joining a walking club. You can 
enjoy being on a double dutch team. There's just so many opportunities. Um, and we really want to listen to what the kids want to see to make them become more active. Um, but then include the educational component on healthy eating um, and then bringing their parents in to understand that and making it fun and a really dynamic experience for these kids. What's the feedback you hear from the kids? Because I know you've been out there with them sometimes. It is so fun. I think 2020 has been tough because we haven't been yeah. able to be with the kids and, and see their faces. But um, just the opportunities that we get to see our grant dollars impacting these kids um, at a Boys and Girls Club in their soccer programming or their flag football programming. Um, and just to know that we're putting those smiles on the kids' faces and just to have the Falcons brand tied to what they're doing um, just makes it really, really fun for us. You mentioned with the pandemic in 2020, obviously last year not being able to be out there. Uh, do you all think you'll be able to resume some of those activities where the kids can really come together and y'all can work with them? You think you can do that this summer? We hope so. That's the goal. Um, obviously, it's so unknown what what protocol will be um, down the road, but we're really trying to get kids active through some more equipment donations where we're ensuring that kids have all the proper um, equipment to ensure that they can socially distance play with one another. Um, so just supporting organizations where we can right now and ensuring that they're getting what they need to, to provide for these kids, whether it's virtually or in person. And again, Abby, we want to make sure we get this information out because I have folks emailing me already wanting to know more information. Now we can't, we will we will put the website with the link on our website, but also just again to sort of talk about what you all are looking for as it relates to funding these nonprofits got to be a nonprofit in terms of uh, dealing with Georgia's food insecure or doing something that allows households to maybe impact them in terms of growing or, or finding ways to to produce healthy food. What are you looking for? We are just looking for innovative solutions. I think innovation is one of our, our key pillars of the Falcons Youth Foundation is ensuring that we're funding things that don't look like the norm to help solve something that is such an issue, um, something that's scalable, um, that you can replicate in other communities. Um, in collaboration, we really were encouraged to see some of the partners that we have collaborating in 2020 to, to just have a greater reach. And we wanna continue that collaboration um, and kind of create a peer learning network with the people that we fund um, just to express concerns, express frustrations, but then celebrate each other's victories um, within the next couple of years when it comes to food insecurity. And again, we'll have a link on our page as well. Abby, as I let you go, as we wrap up, and I know that uh, this is so important to the Blank Fa uh, Foundation. I have to ask you this. Now, I've never seen Arthur Blank even kick a soccer ball or throw a football. It, does a man have any athletic skills at all? Because I've interviewed him like five times. And he, he's never really, he won't answer that for me. I mean, have you ever seen? I, I personally have not seen him <laughs> doing anything athletic. It's, it's more of a business meeting scenario whenever I'm, I'm exposed to Mr. Blank. But I do know his children. Um, his younger children are, are athletic um, and played sports and are very involved in sports. So it comes from somewhere in the family. <laughs> I'm sure you'll send me an email. Abby Lutzenkirken, thank you so much. You're the program associate for the Arthur and Blank Family Foundation. Again, the Atlanta Falcons Youth Foundation, trying to get a greater understanding of the landscape of Georgia's food system due to the impacts of COVID-19. If you're an organization out there, a nonprofit, and you're doing something about this, then perhaps... Now, someone just emailed me talking about how much. I'm not getting into all that. That is none of my business. Y'all got to talk to Abby about that but just follow the link. And Abby, thank you so much for what you all are doing for area youth. I really appreciate it. I've been following it for a long time and, and thank you all. Thank you. We're blessed to be able to help. So. All right. My name is, and I am, David Escobar, and I live here in Benteen Park, which is pretty close to me. My favorite thing, I would say, is just the, the sense of cleanliness and kind of a new modern feel where everybody's kind of on the same page. Since I'm pretty new to the community, I don't have anything I know I want to change, but if uh, rent prices could come down, I think that'd be great. I'm sure it won't happen soon. I am Marguerite from Marguerite Jerk Bistro, and I live in Decatur, Georgia. About my community is just the togetherness of people just welcoming you and just 
coming together to make it safe and make it feel like home. What I'd like to see is that people would take more interest in their properties and just clean up behind themselves and just look out for each other and just try to make us being a safe, to be a safe net for all of us because there's just so much going on right now and we just have to look out for each other and just, you know, be each other's keeper. My name is Andre Mintz. I live in Stone Mountain, Georgia. My favorite thing about my community is the fact that the music plays a large part in the, uh, the culture. In my community, I'd like to see more healthy food options because outside of the perimeter, a lot of the community doesn't necessarily support the, the fruits and vegetables, the organic culture as much as in the city, and I'd like to see that expand. If you missed any part of today's show, we got you. You can catch up on all the interviews you missed at wabe.org slash closer look. And let me know what you think. Tweet me at WABE Rose Scott or send an email to Rose at WABE.org. This is member supported 90.1 WABE Atlanta. Yes, send me an email, rose at wabe.org, because I love getting your emails. Let me know what's happening in your neighborhood, what community issues are important to you all. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash closer look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. as well as in our podcast. Subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.